0: There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did for you. God did by sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering, And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh leads to death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace." Here ends our lesson. Uh, I mentioned at the beginning of the service, we're doing uh, in the evening right now, and really anytime you see me over the course of the next two months or so here on Sunday mornings, we're doing a series on our St. Marcus core values. It's something that has been a process that we've put together over the course of the past year and a half, leaders here at St. Marcus. Uh, A core value, really what it is, is it's kind of your identity. It's a durable core that travels with you wherever you go so that when you go somewhere, it, there's no chance of it not going with you. So for instance, my identity, uh, my identity is not I am a pastor. Why? Because when I go grocery shopping with my wife and I'm at the grocery store, I don't have a congregation there. I have no flock. I'm not shepherding anybody. It's not part of, it's, it's an expression of who I am, but it is not who I am. Who I am is a redeemed child of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Okay? So there's a difference there. Uh, and what we said, as we worked through these core values, we came up with four of them. And the first of our core values, naturally, is Christ first. We also said that uh, it's possible to distort certain portions of Scripture and whatnot. So we wanted to be make, make sure it was very clear that this was a principle that we've taken directly out of Scripture in all four of these principles. And so we had a, kind of a home-based passage. Lutheran theologians historically call it the sedes doctrinae, the seat of doctrine, the first place that you might turn to as a concise statement for that, that concept, that doctrine is a biblical doctrine. And the, the, the scripture that we're hanging this concept on is, we could choose many, but it's Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, which says, some of you know it, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all those other things will be given to you as well. Now, last week, what I did was I, I, and again, you can listen to this on the podcast if you want, but I broke down what the context of that is. Matthew 6, if you look at verses 25 through 34, that context is all about one thing it's about anxiety. Uh, The word merimnao, the Greek word, is used six times in that section alone, and it means to be pulled apart and torn apart and worry and concern and fear. And therefore, one of the things that Jesus is teaching us in Matthew chapter 6 is, for all of the anxiety that you face in life, over the things that he knows you need. Remember, people there are worried about food and clothes and shelter and what shall we eat and what shall we wear and what shall we, and he says, look, Look at the sparrows. Look at the flowers of the field. Look how your heavenly father takes care of them. Don't you think you who are so much more valuable to him than they, don't you think he's going to take care of your daily needs too? And therefore, what Jesus is teaching in Matthew 6 is the solution to your anxieties in life is to seek first his kingdom, to put Christ first. Now, I need you to understand that is counterintuitive to everything that comes to you naturally, that's counterintuitive to your flesh. Because if you've got financial problems, I guarantee you the first thing you're seeking is better finances. If you've got health problems, the first thing you do is schedule that doctor's appointment and seek out remedies and cures and solutions because you seek first better health. If you are lonely or having relationship problems, the th- first thing you do instinctively is to seek first a better relationship. Jesus says, don't, take you, don't you take that bait humans have this fatal flaw where we seek out what we perceive to be urgent over what we know to be more important. And he says, seek first the kingdom and trust that the God who holds the stars in the sky can hold your life together as well. Okay. So not only in that section did we say that anxiety is cured by seeking first the kingdom, what we also said is if you reverse engineer that, if we were going to try to be a people who embodied that Christ-first trait, The biggest obstacle would be what? If the solution in that text to our anxiety is to put Christ first, then the biggest obstacle to putting Christ first in our life is what? It's not simply a lack of knowledge that we're supposed to put Christ first in our lives. Most Christians, so far as I can tell, understand that. It's not just a general self-centeredness, which is, in fact, at the root of most sin. More specifically, it's what? It's fear. It's a fear and a worry and anxiety that... If we hand over the perceived control that we have of our lives over to Christ, that maybe, I don't know, maybe he doesn't love us enough, maybe he doesn't know enough, maybe does, is he for sure going to deliver the goods on what we need to be happy, contented, satisfied people? This week what we're doing, you know, as we said, okay, we don't want to be people of fear. We want to be people of faith. Based on his track record, the only way we're going to trust Jesus moving forward to deliver the goods is if we see how he has already delivered the goods in the ultimate way in the past. And We said, moving forward, what would it actually look like if we as a people embodied that Christ-first trait? What if we lived not according to fear but lived according to faith? What if we lived according to the Spirit? The Spirit of Jesus, who he says he has now actually placed inside of us. I'm going to break it into two points here today, okay? First of all, we have life by the Spirit, how we get life in the first place. And then life through the Spirit. What it would actually, just imagine what it would look like if you could have a bunch of people who are living fearlessly because they fully trusted everything that Jesus promised. Okay? So first of all, life by the Spirit. Um, I don't know this for sure, but if I got a room of, let's say, a hundred theologians, really, really fantastic Bible scholars together, and said, okay, you get to choose one chapter, one book of the Bible, let's say, that gives you a summary of the main message of all of Scripture. Which book of the Bible would you choose? The most comprehensive summary of the main message of the Bible. I would, if I was a betting man, I would push my money into, over half of them are going to say the book of Romans. It's, been considered by Bible scholars for many years to be perhaps the best summary of the main teaching of the Bible. That doesn't mean everything in the Bible is in there, but the main teaching of the Bible. And if they were to choose one chapter amongst those chapters in Romans as the best comprehensive summary, I would say a bunch of them would choose chapter 8. And if they were to choose just one passage from chapter 8 that is like the epicenter of all of Scripture, the most concise statement that says what the Bible in general says, I think it would be Romans 8.1. I would not argue with somebody who said, that is everything of the Bible in a nutshell. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But to fully understand what that means, you you actually got to back up a bit. Because in Romans 7, you know what the Apostle Paul is talking about? It doesn't matter what translation of the Bible you use. Almost every section header will say something like, struggling with sin. The Apostle Paul's struggle with sin. And Christians have have been curious about this for years and some of them have said there's no way Paul could actually be talking about himself here, right? Paul, the second most influential guy in the history of Christianity right after Jesus. The Apostle Paul, the guy who is the original church planter and the greatest Christian missionary in world history. He's got to be talking about his former self, doesn't he? Talking about when he was Saul of Tarsus, the persecutor of Christians. Clearly that guy had some issues. He's talking about him, right? Uh Uh-uh. This is Paul actually nearing kind of the end of his life, talking about his daily struggle against the flesh and his sinful nature. And you know what he says in in that chapter? Brief summary here. He says, For I have the desire to do what is good. I can't carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil that I do not want to do. This, I keep on doing. He goes on to say, I'm a prisoner. I'm not actually in control of all of this. I'm a slave to this. I'm a a, a prisoner of the law of sin that is at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who is going to rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, over the course of the years in ministry, I've worked with a lot of people who have been dealing with a variety of different sorts of addictions. And one of the first sections of the Bible that I will lead them to is Romans chapter 7. And we'll read through that. And I'll say, look at what that says there. The good things that I want to do, I can't seem to get myself to do them. And the bad things that I don't want to do, I keep slipping into this stuff over and over. What a wretched person I am. I said, does that sound familiar? You know what that is? That's the words of an addict. But it's the Apostle Paul. And what he's teaching you there is sin in its function. It functions exactly like addiction. Uh, all addiction is is in some respects kind of manifestation of the sin nature, which is fascinating because if you get to chapter 8, you see what his solution is. Anybody who's ever gone through any kind of rehabilitation program knows that the very first step in any sort of recovery or rehab is to do what? Admit, I am powerless to do this for myself. I need some kind of higher power or whatever else to break in to save me from this. Where do you think they get that concept from? It's Romans 7 and 8. Look at what the Apostle Paul says in our lesson today. This is verses 2 through 4 of chapter 8. Through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life. This is another way of saying the gospel. It's confusing, I know, because the Apostle Paul uses the word law in a couple different ways here. But when he says the law of the Spirit who gives life, he's talking about what Lutherans would call the gospel. He has set you free by that gospel from the law of sin and death, which is what we typically call the law, the thing that shows us our sins. For what the law, the thing that shows you your sins, what that was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did, God did by sending you his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us and for us, who do not live. This is we don't gain our lives by the flesh, but we get our life, we get new life according to the spirit. Here's what he's saying. Understand this correctly. Jesus didn't just show up in order to help you pay for your sins, Jesus paid for your sins. Jesus didn't show up to help you clean up your life and become a decent human being so that you might become acceptable before God. Jesus became a righteous life and gifted that to you. Jesus does not give you seven self help steps, He does not give you an ideology, He does not give you a philosophy, He gives you Himself. That's very different from what the rest of the world says. That's very, very different from every other world religion. It's a despair of self, but a resurrection only in him. Now, what does this mean? If you actually believe that, if you believe I can't contribute to my salvation, but it has to be entirely gifted to me, it took God's son to do this for me, the moment you believe that, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, I'll tell you what, what it says there in English, I have no idea how translators get away with not putting an exclamation point behind that statement. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No big deal. Next line. This is the culmination of the, the, th- the whole deal here, right? And in Greek, it actually has, you can, you can see the construction a little bit better. Um, I had a, a professor at the seminary, a sweet little old man who kind of, he actually kind of wrote the book on Romans, our people's Bible in our library, is written by this guy. But at this time, he was a professor emeritus, which if you don't know what that is, that's like the grandparent of professors in graduate school. They like, grandparents don't have a ton of day-to-day responsibility, they just come in and have fun, and then they're like, well, this isn't, this isn't my problem, and then head out and move on. Professor emeritus, they, they will go in, they'll teach their class, what are we going to cover today? Yeah, we're done. All right, fine. And they, have to, they, just, they look so happy all the time. And he would come in and he would say, this construction in the Greek language, and there's a couple constructions like this, he'd say, the best way to translate this is, heck no. Is there condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Heck no. I don't know why I found that so funny, but it was like it was the closest thing I could ever think of a seminary professor coming to like actually swearing, yelling, heck no. And so sometimes I would even ask him, Professor, how did you say we're supposed to translate that? Heck no, James. Heck no. He was making his point very clear because sometimes some Christians think, yes, Jesus died and paid for all my sins, but if I slip back into some of my old habits, um, how can God love me anymore? Again, I can't stand myself. You're going to tell me God can stand me? You cannot slip out from under this shield of Christ. Grace is not a needle that you balance on. It's a state that you live in. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In fact, the Greek word here is a legal word, katakrima. It would have been used in the court system, and it means it's a verdict. It's a declaration and a permanent verdict. It's not so much a change in your character. It's a change in your status. So the Apostle Paul absolutely anticipates you're going to continue to struggle with stuff. Yet this side of heaven, he says one chapter earlier, take him at his word, he's struggling with stuff. The difference between a believer and non-believer is not that believers don't struggle with stuff. Believers just all of a sudden become more aware that they are struggling with stuff, whereas a non-believer is almost kind of blissfully unaware of their faults. The Apostle Paul says, you know, I get it. Every day I'm battling this monster that exists inside me called the sinful flesh. And uh, yet, there is no condemnation for me. Why? Because of Christ Jesus, who changed God from a boss into a father. See, if you make, if you make a big mistake or if you make the same mistake repeatedly, your boss is probably going to fire you, right? But if, you, if he's your father and you screw up again, he might ground you. Uh, but he's not going to kick a little kid out of the house. That's not what a loving father does. Your adoption into God's family, if you continue to read Romans 8 here today, at one point the Apostle Paul says, we get to cry out, Abba, Father, which is the ancient Aramaic way of saying, Daddy. It means little kid. That's what you are in relationship to your father. If you get to cry out, Daddy, adoption into his family doesn't primarily mean a change. Adoption into your family doesn't mean a change in the child's character. It means a change in the child's status. They are legally now yours. They receive all the benefits of being part of that family. And what that family means is there's no condemnation for you. You can't slip out from under that. Since you didn't earn it, you can't unearn it. Make sense? That's the first point. You don't get it by your own. That's how you get life. But something interesting happens to the extent that you realize it's not your own doing, but it's his doing. What the Bible says is proportionately God starts to pour his spirit inside of you. See, it's different. God doesn't just in an abstract way love you or in an abstract way erase your sins. Jesus takes your condemnation in your place. See, that's heart-melting. You don't just have gratitude, but you are drawn closer to that person. And when that happens, the Bible says, his spirit pours into you. You start living not according to your instincts... But according to his spirit and his instincts. Here's what it says in verses five and six. Those who live, who are now alive, uh, according to the flesh, have their minds set only on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind that is governed by the spirit is life and it is peace. So here's what he's saying here that whole flesh thing. What does he mean to live by the flesh? Well, what is the flesh? That's your natural instincts. Uh, That's a me-first attitude. That's the way every human lives, right? In fact, I would say that's the biggest problem that arguably exists on the planet in society. We have 7 billion people who are walking around who are essentially every day instinctively saying, me first. If you could get rid of that, wouldn't the world look a little bit different? Would there be any oppression of people groups, uh... Oppression of tribes or nations or people on the basis of skin color. If you could get rid of me first. If we embodied the spirit of Jesus, which is a spirit of grace, that says, no, not me first, you first. Would there be racism? No. Um, what about in the past couple years, we've had a, a lot, obviously a lot, lot of attention with uh, sexual abuse and the Me Too movement, right? There would be no Me Too if there wasn't a Me First. Uh, what, if, what about war? What about abortion? What about starvation? What about jails? Would we have any jails on earth if every single human being operated not out of the principle of the flesh, which is me first, and operated only out of Christ's spirit, you first? I don't think so. The problem with the me first, that focus, that utter focus on self-infatuation and self-obsession is that when you're focused on yourself, you know what you start to notice about your flesh? It's fallen. And we start to loathe ourselves. We start to act out as a result. In fact, that whole idea, I, I think I could make the case that almost all addiction comes from the fear of condemnation. People, that I've, at least that I've worked with as addicts who say, I can't stand myself for this or this or this, are seeking some way to self-medicate and numb that pain. Furthermore, what is the reason why you can't take any criticism? Why your heart absolutely pounds when somebody starts to criticize who you are as a parent or as an employee or whatever else. Because you're, you're desperately afraid of their condemnation. See, I tried this earlier this week. If I actually believed there was no condemnation for me, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, if I actually believed that nothing in life could separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus my Lord, how, how differently would I actually act on a day-to-day basis? If I had absolutely no fear that the world was going to condemn me because who cares what the world thinks and I, myself, am not condemning myself and I'm not loathing myself, I would never act out the way that I currently do. If I really believed there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, what would it look like if we could kill that me-first instinct? If we actually believed there was no condemnation, let me give you a couple examples. If we actually lived through the Spirit with an other focus of grace, what would it look like in your work? I heard a minister say a number of years ago a story about one of the members of his congregation who was a chief marketing executive at a pretty large advertising firm. And one day one of his employees, he had been there for a number of years, one of his employees, however, made a pretty big mistake. And uh, she came into his office, she told him about the mistake, they ended up losing several clients over the mistake. And she was, you know, almost in tears, and he said, you know what, don't worry about it, you're a solid worker, you're a good worker, I'll take care of this, you know. She knew that she could have been fired for this, but he said, I've been here 20 years, I'll tell the CEO about it. Um, I've been here a long time, I'll be fine. So he goes, he tells his boss about it, CEO's upset, he says, don't let it happen again, you're a good worker, just keep going on. Several days later, that woman comes back into her manager's office and says, I don't understand why you did that, I've been fired for a lot less before. And he said, don't worry about it, you know, you're a good worker, you work hard, learn from this mistake and move forward. But she was insistent and she wouldn't leave his office. She said, I need to know. Nobody's ever done something like that for me before. Why would you do that? You barely even know me. He said, well, if you must know, I'm a Christian. And what I believe at the core that that means is that God came to earth in the person of Jesus and he took this huge fall in my place for my sins so that I can go and live with God eternally. And I guess one way I look at worshiping him here in this lifetime is I look when and where I have opportunity, I can take the fall for somebody else. This woman who wasn't a Christian said, where did you say you went to church? See, because she had never actually seen grace before. That's what grace looks like at your job. What does grace look like in your marriage? I know a guy who would always talk about, I thought it was interesting at first, but he he would talk about his wife's. Uh, pregnancy scars and stretch marks as just this beautiful thing because he said, those are the sign of some of the greatest blessings that God has ever brought into my life. And I know a wife who married a man who was, he was about 10 years older than her. In the last five years of his life, Uh, he mentally went downhill real quick with dementia and he could barely remember who he was, where he was, what year it was and he certainly didn't remember very often who she was or even what her name was. He would not have known the difference had she not showed up each day or not but she showed up every day and she loved him consistently and she loved him generously and she loved him undeservedly. That's what grace looks like in your marriage. What does grace look like in your relationships with your enemies? Uh, some of you might remember this story from about 10 years ago. It was a national news story. Um, there was a guy who was a, a dairy truck farmer in Pennsylvania. Seemingly pretty normal guy, uh, has a pretty normal life. He's married, he has three kids, steady job, but he's, he's kind of a quiet guy. And someday, one day he seemingly just kind of snaps and long story short, he, he goes into an Amish school in Pennsylvania, and he opens fire, and he kills five kids, and he wounds five more until he turns a gun on himself and takes his own life. A week later, his funeral gets held, and there's 75 people in attendance, and you know who the majority of the people in attendance are? It's that Amish community, and they're not there picketing, and they're not there demanding justice, and they're not there to slap a lawsuit on anybody, you know why they're there? Because they think his widow, his wife, and those three kids, they've experienced a loss too, and they need somebody to hug them and mourn with them and support them throughout all of this. That's what grace to your enemies looks like. What does grace in your finances look like? I know a guy who who is uh, basically middle, middle income, I had a nice job but wasn't wealthy or, or anything by the world's measure. And, uh, he one day came to this conclusion upon hearing some stuff and studying his Bible. He thought, I wonder what it would look like if I could somehow get by. I get two paychecks every month. I wonder what it would look like if I could somehow just live on one paycheck. And so he tried it and he said, what if God was giving me another paycheck and I looked at it just like it was an envelope of cash that he was using me to bless somebody else in their life with? Who looks at their finances like that? A guy who has had his heart shaped by grace. Grace is the single most foreign substance that exists on planet Earth. And it's, it actually didn't fully show up until Jesus himself showed up as the embodiment of grace and lived every day out of love saying, you first to us. And died on the cross saying, you first to us. And rose from the grave saying, God, you and them first for us. And then, amazingly, at Pentecost, he says, I'm going to take my spirit, I'm going to put it inside of you, and I want you to live that exact same kind of way. What on earth does that look like? Uh, Our school has developed a set of what they call vital behaviors over the course of uh, the past year, as this Christ first, as in, Christ first, you next, me third principle. They have said what that means for us when we always put Christ first It means every critical conversation that we're going to have is going to be bookended by prayers on either end. What if every critical conversation you had in life, at least with another Christian, was bookended by prayers? Uh, they've said things like the word of God and the instruction of the Bible is, that's the one non-negotiable thing that can happen every day. It must happen. It can't not happen because Christ first. Uh, they say that When somebody comes into our campuses and looks at what we do, they want to see the love of Christ and the fruit of the Spirit involved in everything that we're doing. They say that we want all of our leaders, all of our staff to be involved in God's word, not just in the course of the the school day, but well beyond the course of the school day. What does it look like as a church to put Christ first in our lives? What if every single decision that you ever made was filtered simply by thinking, not me first, what does Christ first do in this situation? How would that affect our worship lives? How would that affect our study lives? How would that affect our giving? How would that affect our lives of service to others? What if we actually believed uh, that Jesus was going to make good on every single promise that he's ever get made to us, and we simply lived out of faith and not fear that way? What if we had an army of people, like a thousand people in our church, who all lived that way and moved in the exact same direction? What if we truly believe there is no condemnation for us, so we're playing with house money, and this life on earth, which is a little blip in the grand scheme of eternity, we can simply hand it over and live by his spirit to his glory. Let's ask God to help us see exactly what that looks like, okay? Heavenly Father, the biggest issue that we face in our lives is that we somehow through sin get focused just too much on ourselves uh, and when we do that it actually makes us miserable because we realize there's things in there that in our hearts in our natural flesh that aren't great and so what you do through a beautiful cross what we, we sang earlier an old rugged cross you direct our eyes to something more beautiful you direct our eyes to you Not only did you live, die, and rise to take away our sins, but you placed your spirit in us, and we just are asking to see what it looks like if we as a people collectively live with a you-first kind of attitude. By your spirit, help us do exactly that. In your name we pray. Amen.